0: The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Good morning, everyone. Uh, the scripture reading today is on page 1109 in the Bible's uh, From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside. Excuse me. (laughs) The city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Theatira, Named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, she was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, "Come and stay at my house." And she persuaded us. Once, when we were right, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting. These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. God bless the reading of the Lord.
1: Amen. Amen. Um, Historians and theologians believe that the statement, I am a Roman citizen, has a powerful backstory. And so it's not the point of the chapter that I want to get to, but I want to just show you a couple of things that at the very end of this passage that I found very interesting With this demand, I am a Roman citizen, did you pick up on the fact that he also demanded a public apology? Paul um, wasn't just satisfied that they said, okay, you're good, you're free, sorry, go. He actually told them to go get the guys that had beaten them and accused them and make them walk them out publicly as a way of saying to everybody around them, oh, we made a great mistake in beating and flogging this man publicly. See, around the year 70, it's argued that there was a a, a famous court case in Roman history. And I'm not going to give you a whole lot of background. I know some of you are researchers, and I'll share enough in the story. You can go look it up on your own. But in order to keep this opening as short as possible, I'm just going to get to the facts. There was a magistrate around the year 70 that was abusing his authority in that area. And so right about the time he was be moving to another area to lead underneath the Roman rule, he would go around because he had been to everybody's house. And he would take pieces of art, he would take money, he would take land, possessions from them, because he was the Lord over that area and he would take things. Well, rumors started to spread and another magistrate decided to look into it and come to find out he wasn't just doing that. He was beating people into silence and, and, and killing them and, and not just people that were Gentiles by label, but actual Roman citizens. And at the trial, once this weather magistrate got all the facts together, brought this guy to Caesar and began to put him on trial, the 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 statement from the witnesses, could you imagine what the statement of the witnesses were? I am a Roman citizen. And so now this famous trial, the phrase, I am a Roman citizen, is now spreading because what was happening was is anytime a Roman in authority would beat another Roman, there was now a precedent for my law people, um, a precedent that had been set. And now it was like, wait a minute, and if I stand up in a public discourse and I feel like I'm on the underside of power, I can say I am a Roman citizen and then I'm demanded a hearing. And so it was a, a huge thing. Was going. So by Paul doing this, he is tying into something. And this is what I want to say to many of you in here today that is totally apart from my sermon. Where's your privilege? Where is your privilege? Where do you have an advantage? And are you using that for the kingdom of God? Paul at the end of this particular passage says, I am a Roman citizen. And by the way, you beat me publicly, you insulted me, you imprisoned me, my God set me free. And I'm not just going to be satisfied with that. I'm going to make the accusers walk me out. They told me to leave quickly. No, I'm just going to go hang out with Lydia. I'm going to take my time leaving town because I am a Roman citizen. And so let me just say this again to all of you most of us sitting in this room if not a hundred percent of us in certain areas of life you have privilege and are we leveraging that for the kingdom of god so let me step into the teaching now because there's so much in act 16 that i want us to help make sense of before we all go to brunch together um there's dark powers in the world can we just agree all right i just i, I want I, I know i got agreement from this side of the room so let me just ask this side of the room. Do we not understand that there are just dark powers at work in the world? It is. It's happening. This is our nodding section, so I'll come to you with nods. <laughs> this is my verbal response section, so when I need encouragement, I'm going to come over here. And then you guys were kind of in between people, all right? And so with this, I want us to understand that Paul is stepping into a place where dark powers have been in control for a long time. And we need to be careful because a lot of times the dark powers that are in control are a few people that control the many, right? It's generally what happens is that there's a few powerful people that control the many people. And then when that starts to happen, all types of sinful behavior starts to take place. And so I don't want to be like overly melodramatic. I don't want it to feel like a... Um, a sermon drama that I'm trying to do to just get you to go along with this teacher. I just want you to understand something. What Paul is doing here in this passage was real. It actually happened. Luke is writing in such a way that it feels like he's just charting a course, like we're following a map, saying, okay, Paul went from here to here to here, and he prayed, and he fasted, he taught, he went to synagogues, and we can just get caught up on connecting the geographical dots, but we also need to understand that there was... Spiritual forces at work in people's lives, and can you see why Paul wrote to the early church and said to them, "Oh, let me let me talk to you about spiritual armor, because when you when you are walking in this new way, you're going to be bumping up against principalities and powers that are not seen, but they're real, and you're going to think it's flesh and blood, but you're going to need to learn how to fight against spiritual forces." And so Baltimore, I believe, where we're currently located, whether you've been a resident here for a long time or you've been a resident here for less than a year, you have most likely felt darkness, dark forces at work. And so there's a part of this that I believe that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, which I believe are the four main characters on this journey segment right now that we have, where we're going to learn from them as they step in and discern what to do and how to do it, um, but when we look at this, this is a territory with all types of abuses of power, all types of different personal motives that are taking place. But yet, what was the first method of evangelism that Paul always did when he went to a new place? He looked for a what? A synagogue. So when you roll into a city that probably has a very small Jewish population, therefore and it doesn't have a synagogue, then what do you now do? He looked for where the people were gathering to pray. And so he found what he, what we believe is a small group of Jewish women that are praying. And it's very likely with the writing style of this day that this wasn't a women's only meeting, but because of the writing style, it's possible. I'm not saying it's just an argumentation. Like I'm not saying I'm right or wrong or, but I believe that there were men present, but they were non-Jews. So since Luke is writing from a Jewish perspective, he's writing the Jewish women that are there that are married to Gentile men because the gospel was going from the Jews to the Gentiles. And so there's this pattern of progression that that Christ came for the Jew and then went to the Gentiles, and there's now this on-reaching kingdom expansion that's taking place. And so this it's likely that the women and men were possibly there, but even if it was just all women. The thing that I think is really interesting about this story is that Paul's habits and patterns, even when they bumped up against things that seemed different, he was always looking for the open door. We have this method of life in our church family that we call intentional living, which half of you haven't heard about it because we haven't been together long. So we're going to talk through it in some opportunities over the coming weeks, but yet we're modeling it after people like Paul in the New Testament that seem to wake up every day and thank the Lord for all the blessings that he had, even though he'd probably been beaten and stoned the day before. But, yet he would, but then he would say, Lord, what do you have for me today? Intentional life. And so Paul here, obviously, was looking for this. And it's very possible that this prayer group along the river... Was the inspiration that led to the vision that Paul had that led him on this missionary journey? Can you, can you connect the dots from Acts 16, the first few verses, all the way now through where we are? That these people were praying, seeking God. They wanted to know the one true God. And so were they surprised when Paul and his team walked up and said, Can we join your prayer time? We want to talk to you about the God who sent us. Can I just tell you this? I wish that every evangelistic experience that I've had as a pastor in Baltimore was this easy. I love walking up to people that want to know Jesus. And they're easy. You just come up to them and say, you know what, all the hurt, the long, the sin, whatever's bothering you, Jesus. And they're like, yes. No argumentation, no persuasion, no painful long hours of discourse. But yet, much like the story of Cornelius a few chapters ago, there was a lot of vision and dreams behind it, and it was just a right... It's like you go up to knock on the window, and you realize the window's open. I'm like, okay, that didn't take much effort. But what was all of this chapter bathed in? Starts with a P. It's a church word. Prayer. Thank you. All right? So i got the response team here, all right? All right, let me just hear prayer from over here. One, two, three, prayer, Prayer. all right. So Lydia, who was obviously a very wealthy merchant with the the background we're hearing from this and giving the specifics of the colors of garment that she's producing, I believe Luke is giving us enough to know that this is a above middle-class woman and we hear at the very end of the chapter, she's inviting Paul and Silas and his team to come stay at her household. Specific word, not just stay at my house, My household, she had a space that was full of people and people serving, and there was room and there was life in her family. And it was probably because that she had it and she was sharing it. And so we find here that Paul was praying. Lydia and her friends were praying. Paul, Timothy, Silas, and most likely Luke were praying. And Lydia and all of her family were praying. And next thing you know, they step up to this and realize that God is doing a miraculous work. And they were moved, realizing that Jesus literally was Lord. So let me just go ahead and share this with us. I talked about the spiritually dark forces that were at work. When you have an anointed moment like this chapter... There are spiritual forces at work in this world that view that as a serious threat to their kingdom. And they don't like it. You will realize that on Sundays of brunch, when we leave worship and we go eat, some of the strongest conflicts that you'll have in your intimate circles will come on our brunch Sunday. Because the enemy's like, no, I don't want anything to do with God's family acting like God's family. We don't want anything to do with, with unity and oneness and a shared table and people of different backgrounds and economics looking at each other and te- treating each other with dignity and respect. There's an enemy that's out there that's like, I don't want anything to do with that. So he's going to do everything he can to steal, kill, and destroy. So there were three powers that, are, that, that manifested itself in this passage that I want to bring our attention to. And the three powers that really wish to do evil here that were taking matters in his own hands, were these. The strange spiritual forces that was at work in that that girl. The profit motive. Did you guys pick up on that? As soon as they lost income, that's when they got ticked off. The third is the religious and political prejudice that took place here. Let me start with the strange spiritual forces. If we go back... It's been happening all through Acts. So I want to tie you back in your Bible study this week to Acts 8 to Acts 13, and look at how so many times um, there's these moments and opportunities for the evil one to step in and look to steal, kill, and destroy everything that's going on in and around us. Sorry, my iPad just shut down again randomly. It's like, okay, all right, there's an the evil one. Um, <laughs> So uh, thank the Lord I planned for it. So it's already open on my phone just in case. Um, But it came back to me. Thank you, Lord. Um, So the strange spiritual um, forces that were at work is something I think is really interesting because we read this with our Western mindset. So anytime we hear words like saved or um, she was shouting out, this is the most high God, they're servants of the most high God, we automatically view it through how we've been western Western taught, and we automatically assume she's talking about the same God that we worship. But it's most likely not. She's from a part of the Roman world where they had multiple gods, they had multiple streams of thought about life and end times and what people did when they died. And so with this girl following after them and them being in the place where they were, it's very likely that whether it could be Apollo or Zeus or somebody else, she was, she was saying that these men were servants of some other god. Now can you see why, Paul? Like, I talked to this section a few minutes ago because they were talking back to me. But could you imagine if Paul's teaching about Jesus and they're like, that guy is a servant of the Most High God? Like, why would you get frustrated by that? Why would it drive you crazy when they're saying, no, they're servants of the one true God because she wasn't representing the one true God? It was confusing the audience. It was confusing the fact that that, that they were there because of the Lord Jesus Christ and not because of some other form of God. So by her saying this, Paul needed to silence that voice because he was a representative of the Most High God. He was representing the true king. The true Lord in Roman language, which was a very powerful word in the first century, for several centuries, that we don't necessarily understand the gravity. And it's very likely here that salvation would not have been understood as a Christian salvation, like my personal sins were forgiven. And so I want to talk a little bit about that in just a few minutes, because what's now going to step in isn't just this spiritual force that was talking through this girl, but is now the motivation that really got these men flogged and beaten and thrown into jail, which is they started to change the economics of the community. What really started happening was this profit motive. Like, is this going to make me rich? And then when that's taken away, even if it's the abuse of this young lady, like most likely they were putting this lady out to be abused and taken advantage of just so that somebody else could take in money. And so this, these these people were profiting off of this. They were seeking to do evil by taking advantage of people. And then the third thing in this, which I talked about, was this religious and political prejudice They dragged Paul and Silas out before the magistrates, and they claimed that these men were were Jews. And they also advocated that they were against Roman customs and started making a case against them because their purse was getting smaller. These men most likely were retired Roman soldiers from a generation in the past. And so, can you see why they were so quick to move towards violence towards these two, Paul and Silas in particular? And then they stripped them, they flogged them, they jailed them. And they discovered, Paul and Silas, they discovered what happens to those who challenge the powers of the world with the power of the name of Jesus. Now, this is true. But this is not what we believe in our faith. Like last week, we had three people get into our baptism tank. They did not get into the baptism tank for that. They didn't want to say, hey, I want to believe in Jesus. And now they want to head out down Pratt Street and somebody to come up to them saying, hey, you baptized publicly in Jesus. That's against everything I believe in. And so I'm going to now beat you and then put your feet in shackles and throw you in the middle of a prison. But this is what was happening to them. And it kind of goes in steady circles around some of the songs we were singing this morning about Jesus being around us and protecting us and, and being a safe place for us to go. But yet our faith, when we are truly following after Jesus, because of the powers that are working work in this world, there is going to be sometimes physical but also emotional harm that's going to come our way. And that's not the prosperity gospel, that like if I believe in Jesus and I do everything right, I'm going to get rich in jets and boats and nice cars. This is a, I might be doing exactly what God wants and I'm going to be, be beaten within an inch of my life. And then when I finally get a break from the beating, I'm going to sing. Which then... Takes me back to the harmony series we talked about just a few weeks ago. The question that I asked about the the is this sin, is this not sin? My question was, who am I becoming? It's like because some of the things that we might be pursuing might not be harming anybody, but who's it making you to be? What kind of person, if you continue this behavior, are you going to continue to be? Who is discipling you? Like If you have a major news network on right now of any stream, it's discipling you. If you have certain people that you read their books, every time an author writes a book, you buy their book, that person is discipling you. We have to be really careful. Are they discipling me towards Jesus or are they discipling me into something else? Because at the end of the day, we don't need to look like a major news network. We need to look like Jesus. It needs to be Jesus. That's who needs to come out. And so many of you have been around our church long enough to know that one of the men that I try to drink in and I try to encourage you to drink in is, a, is one of the bishops um, in England of, named N.T. Wright, Tom Wright for some. Um, and he, he's written several books. And here's a statement on this chapter that I think is really important. It's on a slide for you. Salvation in the ancient world did not mean going to heaven when you die and that is by no means how the new testament writers use it jesus himself frequently speaks of someone being saved when he means healed in luke 8:48 your faith has saved you in other words as made you well so saved meant simply rescued delivered and from whatever problem be it sickness financial disaster personal catastrophe or anything else might be threatening and so the famous question here in this passage of Scripture is, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And the, and the thought is, is they're wanting to know, in, like this jailer, like who's on the edge of his sword, is saying to Paul, this is what the Westerner thinks, he's on the edge of his sword about to commit suicide, and he's saying, please give me the theology of justification through grace, through my faith. Right? That's what he was asking, right? No. What he was asking is, I'm going to be dead in an hour because Rome is going to come and see that all the prisoners are out and I'm going to be held responsible. So I'll probably be tortured before I die. So this is going to be a lot less painful if I just go ahead and kill myself. And here's what happens. He bumped into Paul who gave him more than he was asking for. Now this is what makes it good news, is that people are in this world... Struggling against all different types of things. Some of you are distracted by the systemic issues in our world where abuse of power is harming people. And so you can't see anything else other than how people are still by this, by the millions in slavery today. And that, and that is hindering your faith because you're like, if there's a good God, why are there still so many people held in slavery? Others of you are distracted by more local related issues. You might be a school teacher thinking, I just wish I could get my kids to 80% attendance just to have a chance at education, and and you're fighting those issues. But all of us in here uh, have personal distractions, personal things that are attacking us and, and burdensome to us. And what Paul says to this jailer is what needs to be said to all of us. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Lord Jesus Christ puts him over all the systemic issues and puts him over all your personal issues. Everything that you've done right, and everything you've done wrong, and now we serve a true king. And he's saying to this jailer, you want to know what's bad about the system that would have an earthquake, release people from prison, and then you be held responsible by death? That whole broken train of thought. He's like, Jesus, you want to come o- overcome your suicidal thought? Jesus. You want to overcome any of your imprisonment? Jesus whether physical, emotional, whatever, all of these things, this is what Paul is inviting this jailer into is that Jesus is Lord over all. this, This jailer was just not wanting to die physically because of a mistake that he felt like he was making. And so here's the Christian view. It sees the entire mess that the world is in. We have a hope that addresses all of the messes. The messes of human rebellion, the messes of idolatry, the messes of sin, the methods of the, the, the systems of corruption in the human life, the corruption of relationships, and let me also say this: the, the mess of the way that we're polluting a good world that God has made, where there's bodies of water we can't drink from anymore. there's no more walnut trees on Walnut Street, right? There's no more moose in New England. Right? It's just, there's so many places and things that have happened in the world because of our sin and the world is groaning, Romans 8. Jesus is Lord over all those things. Jesus is Lord over all of it. And the world, the Christian worldview is that we are all heading, the world is heading, is currently heading towards Jesus being King over all of it. It's not just something that's happening shortly. It's happening, and it will be happening. The way of the world will be when Jesus is reigning as Lord, and we believe in a second coming. We actually talk about it at the Lord's table. He's going to come back, and everything that's broken from a governmental standpoint will be fixed, and everything that's broken inside of me will be fixed, because Jesus is the answer to all of it. That's why, quote, believing in the Lord Jesus is always the answer to the question of how to be rescued at whatever level and whatever sense. So if, you're, if, you're, if you want to swim in the bay in the next 20 years, you know what the answer is? Jesus. Because it's not until we meet Jesus and we learn to live according to his ways that we'll do the things that we need to do in order for us to be able to swim in that bay. And if you're not wanting kids to be hungry at school, let me tell you the answer. It's Jesus. If we want spousal abuse to stop, it's Jesus. If we want tensions at the border to stop, it's Jesus. If we want terrorism to stop, it's Jesus. If we want hatred to stop, it's Jesus. Because it's not until we all agree that Jesus is Lord that we'll start to treat each other like brothers and sisters like we should. So he's the answer to all of it. But the thing is, is I need to be renewed so that I can step into the world saying, Jesus loves me, this I know. So that now I can then love like Christ in the world. So you need a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. But that's not the end game. The end game is that we all serve a risen Savior. That we all serve the Lord the good news here, that it, it, and I put this on a slide, or Josie put this on a slide for you, the good news that it, it isn't about getting in touch with one's inner spiritual self. I just want you guys to understand that. I've run into a lot of people in Baltimore, even some of the people that I go to regularly, like for haircuts and things like that. The conversation generally is, okay, everybody just needs a spiritual touch. Right? It's just like, okay, however you do it, you just need a personal spiritual experience, well, I'll be okay. Let me just tell you this, that falls short of Jesus. Jesus doesn't want you just to just have a spiritual experience. He wants to be king of our hearts. It isn't about committing oneself to a life of worship and prayer and good works. It's not just about me just saying, okay, I'm going to put myself... I turn off the world and I'm just going to do these things. It's not just about that. It's about Jesus being Lord and us worshiping him and serving him. It isn't even about believing in some particular theory of how precisely God deals with our sin and death in Jesus Christ. That's why there's so many denominations. So many people argue about how Jesus really did it. Let me just tell you this. He's seated on the throne. He got there through taking our sin upon himself conquered death in a fight that you and I can't even fathom, rose from it, and then says, now I want you to go and tell people that I'm now king and lord over all. And by the way, you're going to walk through similar situations that he referred to as taking up your own cross and following after him. Let me tell you, it is about recognizing and acknowledging and hailing Jesus Christ as lord Beautifully described in Philippians 2.10, beautifully described in Romans 10.9, if we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The phrase Jesus is Lord is what, from the earliest times, the earliest church, they would, con- they would confess that at baptism. I, w- I think we might change a little bit and ask our baptism candidates, when they come up out of the water, to actually come up out of the water and say, Jesus is Lord! we actually might get some response out of this section if they did that, right? Like, they would come up, because we usually have the baptism tank facing this way, but if they came up like throwing the water, that, it might be a little bit different than, a, wow, that was a nice service. You guys might be like calling your grandparents up, can you believe it? The baptismal candidate was like splashing water out of the pool, saying Jesus is Lord, because that's true. That's why they got in the tank in the first place. And so let's let our physical activity go along with what we believe because we don't just need to know that Jesus is Lord. We need to practice it. We need to step into it. So these chapters like Acts 16 aren't just for us to connect dots between a journey of a missionary journey. Like, let me just know the facts of where Paul went. Let me see how Paul lived. How did the people that responded to the message of the gospel then live? What did they then do? How was their response? Why did they pray? Why did they sing? Why did they have these meals together? Why were they running after all of this? But let me end this before we go to brunch by saying this in closing. God's messengers are not protected from the suffering that will come when their message challenges the easy, prideful rule of political, economic, and religious forces. Can I just tell you guys this? If you do what I'm talking about today with me, I'm not just telling you to go live this. I really want to live it myself. So if if I do this in community with you, as best as we can figure out what that looks like, we will experience pain. We will experience suffering. So if it is your responsibility, and I believe C.S. Lewis said it best, if it is your desire to have a pain-free life, Christianity is not for you. Because... What this means is, is that I get the eyes of Christ and I see where brokenness is in the world and i move moved with compassion. And compassion is love in action, right? It's not watching, like for me, one of the biggest sins of my generation was when I was coming out of college and watching on the news, eating my dinner while Rwanda was under great attack. And I was like, wow, look what's going on over there. And I did nothing. You know, I'm like, if we have eyes like Christ, we're going to see the places and we're not going to be able to sit idle and we're going to have to respond. And some of that might lead you to some form of imprisonment. It might not be one of the Baltimore city jails, but it might be an imprisonment in the room in your house because you've invited roommates in that don't believe in Christ and you start talking about Christ and you're going to feel imprisoned inside of your own home, then let me just say to you, Paul and Silas can identify. They know what it feels like, and we can continue through prayer and fasting figure out what it looks like to walk forward. But yet, when we're going through Acts, we must realize that it is all about the good news of Jesus Christ. I think many of us would prefer the results without the process. Can I just say that? I think a lot of pastors in my generation in the big tent revivals that came that I was I was birthed out of that generation where they would go and they would come forward in mass and pray to receive Christ. They literally were looking for it all to be taken away from them in an instant without any work. It's like if I just come to Jesus, it's all going to be better. And there are a lot of your parents that walked away from the church because they had been to that environment and went and said, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, and then they were never taught the process. And so we want the crown without the cross. We don't want to go to any crosses. We don't want there to be any part of our spiritual life that's difficult. We want to go straight from rags to riches in an instant. Like as if our salvation was some spiritual lottery. And Paul, I believe, is setting a great example of one who was truly set free, living a life of laying his life down for others. And we'll see more and more of that as the weeks come. But I love the fact that it ends in a nighttime feast with the jailer. Only God. Only God. Could have Paul and Silas beaten one day and eating in a jailer's house the next, singing and saying praises. And could you imagine Paul and Silas at the dinner table? It reminds me of a scene in a movie that I'm not condoning, um, but <laughs> um, we kind of like Kevin James as a family in certain settings. Um, and he had a movie where he was a, a, a school teacher and he went to become an MMA fighter and he's learning to fight and he's sitting at the table and he says, Would somebody please pass the meatballs because I can't move my arms? because he'd been so badly beaten. Could you now imagine Paul and Silas after the beating they had at the jailer's house? Um, like, hey guys, this is great. Look, just let me cut up my food for me because I can't move my arms. I mean, I want you guys to connect with this. Paul and Silas felt the pain. Paul and Silas weren't superhuman. There was divine work coming in and through them, but they were being obedient to everything God had for them, but it did cost them and it did hurt let's pray father we're getting ready to come to your table and we don't want to come to the lord's table again just through the motions father we want to truly let this be the climax of what it is that we've learned and what it is that we live because of what we learned Father, your salvation does heal. It heals systemically issues that we face, and it heals personally. Jesus is king over everything. And so, Father, I pray today that your spirit would move in us in such a way that we would truly say to people with joy in our hearts that Jesus is Lord. In him is salvation. In him is healing and hope for the world. And so, Father, I ask in Christ's name that you would do something special in and through us today.